This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story, Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. I'm Rose Fox. I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Sam Slayton, reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. I'm filling in for Mark Rotella, who's on vacation this week. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. So if you hear sirens behind us, that's why. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions. Send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to at pubweeklyradio. That's pub, W-K-L-Y, radio. Today, we'll take a call from Rod Dreher. He's the author of The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming, A Southern Girl, A Small Town, and The Secret of a Good Life. Then PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley will join us to talk about hot books from small presses. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So do you want to start with the nonfiction? Yeah, I'll start with the heavy stuff. Um, since I cover uh, primarily nonfiction, military history, history, things like that, uh, we've got two best-selling military history titles on the bestseller list. Mm-hmm. The, the first one I'd like to talk about is, is a, an interesting one. Um, they're both interesting, but this is uh, particularly timely. This is Chris Kyle's American Gun, A History of the U.S. in Tin Firearms. This is coming out from, from Harper. Chris Kyle was, uh, as some people know, was was known as had the dubious honor of being America's most lethal sniper. Mm -hmm. He had um, something like 200 confirmed kills. And on our spring 2013 announcements, we actually listed Chris Kyle's uh, American gun as one of our, our top 10 picks. And then a mere five days later, Chris Kyle, who had in 2009 had retired from from active military duty, and who had spent the years since then helping vets with PTSD cope with, with the struggle of being back home. He was actually killed by one of these vets that he had taken to yeah. a, a shooting range um, as a way to kind of let off some steam. So Chris was essentially finishing this book up when he was killed. And um, it was finished up by, uh, by his widow and, uh, and co-author William Doyle. And this is, this is a really interesting history. And it's not, and I haven't seen one like this uh, in my time at PW. It's basically a history of the United States told through 10 different weapons. And so that, you know, that ranges from the, the Revolutionary War when they were using things like muskets um, all the way up to Chris Kyle's weapon of choice, the sniper rifle. And so it's great for gearheads and, and military history nerds because Chris Kyle, who uh, you know obviously knows a lot about the actual physical guns, mm-hmm. um, the physical weapons, but it, it, it also is an interesting way to kind of provide a really focused take on each of these different conflicts in which these weapons played a big part. So this one's on the on the bestseller list, and he's also got another book coming out um, in a couple months, which is a memorial edition of his already best-selling American Sniper, which is a memoir. So it's, it's sad that we've, that we've lost Chris Kyle, but in terms of sales, he's still left quite a legacy uh, behind, and a, a lot of people are, are getting to know him now. Absolutely. Well, that sounds definitely like one worth picking up. Absolutely. And we've got another one that, we, that we've talked a, a bit about at Publishers Weekly, and this is Rick Atkinson's The Guns at Last Light, The mm-hmm. War in Western Europe from 1944 to 1945. Rick Atkinson has won two Pulitzers for his work and this is the third and final volume in his Liberation Trilogy, where he essentially 
wrote about World War II, first in Africa, in Northern Africa, and then in Italy, and now in Western Europe. He didn't tackle the, the Pacific theater. But this is a really exciting book because I, I think this is the, the part of World War II that people are most familiar with. Sure. The one, it's, it's the end of it. It's the one in Western Europe. You know, you have the storming of the beaches of Normandy. And we gave it a great review. We gave it a starred review. And it just hit the bestseller lists, um, I believe, two weeks ago. And, you know, when we were working on, uh, when I was working on a little piece about how the book was performing for the magazine, um, I spoke with Patricia Eisman, the vice president director of publicity for Henry Holt. And she revealed that, you know, he's been working on this, this trilogy for, I think, 14 years or something. Wow. Now that he's done, he's actually set his sights on the Revolutionary War, which he calls our Aeneid. It's our creation story. Mm-hmm. All of his histories have been very well received. So it'll be interesting to see what he does with the Revolutionary War. And looking out into the future, uh, just actually today, the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation announced that they've created a new prize in military history called the Guggenheim Lerman Prize in Military History. It's a $50,000, um, or it comes with a $50,000 award, and they will be choosing their first winner next February for a book published in 2013. And it's only my personal opinion, but I think Rick Atkinson, The Guns at Last Light, has a very good chance for in that running. All right. We'll we'll, see. We'll definitely keep an eye out for that news. That's right. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're giving you a rundown of some of the top books on next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So I have a couple of fiction titles that I wanted to talk about. Um, Obviously, still number one, still and forever number one is Inferno by Dan Brown. Uh, This week, it only sold 93,842 copies, a dismal showing. It's one of those books that we would (laughs) refer to as review proof, right? It is absolutely review proof. Uh, It just keeps going forever and ever and ever. Uh, Yeah, we could have said it was the worst book in the world, and he would still sell out every single one of the four million copies in the first edition. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just chugging along. I mean, 93,000 sales would be extraordinary for any other book's first week, and this is what Inferno's uh, second or third or fourth week. As it's slowing down. Yeah, it's slowing down. It's kind of why it's like a 20% drop from last week, and last week it was a 44% drop from the week before, and it's still just outselling everything else by enormous margins. But we do have a couple of books that were unlucky enough to debut and get pushed down the list while Inferno is still there hogging the top spot. At number six on our hardcover fiction list, we have The Kill Room, a Lincoln Rhyme novel by Jeffrey Deaver. We gave this a starred review and said it was extremely timely. It's about uh, it's the 10th novel featuring Lincoln Rhyme, and he and other regulars in the series conduct a highly irregular investigation that points up the moral ambiguities involved in what are euphemistically called special task orders, or STOs, uh, which involve assassination, basically. Uh, we say this is Deaver at his very best, not to be missed by any thriller fans, is a continuously exciting game of cat and mouse uh, with a host of adversaries, while all of the characters also face important personal decisions. That's what thrillers do best, is mix that sort of global intrigue with the very personal, uh, and Deaver's clearly at the top of his game here. And I think that's something that you don't often think of genre fiction as doing, but I think it's, in, in a way, it's a, it's a really good platform for engaging with, as we said, timely issues. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And you know, particularly these thrillers, you know, spy thrillers, intrigue thrillers, um, they pull in a lot of international politics and the authors pay very, very close attention 
to what's going on. There's actually another example a little further down the list, which is Red Sparrow by Jason Matthews. Now, when Peter Cannon was on the show a couple of weeks ago, he was talking about this. It was one of our picks for summer books, uh, and it's number 18 on our fiction hardcover list. This is a, a spy novel. Um, the author had a 33-year career in the CIA, and so this lets him you know, write this, this novel set uh, mostly in Moscow and Helsinki with uh, just incredible verisimilitude. We did a, a Q&A with him uh, and said, you know, when you decided to write a novel, did you consider writing in any other genre? I mean, you, know, you spent 33 years in the CIA, maybe you wanted to do something else. And he said, no, I thought it would be interesting to celebrate the world of intelligence and espionage. Uh, using the fascinating accounts over the decades of all of the people that he's interacted with. And he says he does enjoy reading other espionage and thriller books, even though sometimes the plots stretch reality. You know, it's interesting talking about American spy fiction. I was looking through a galley of of a book coming out uh, in the next few months from Oxford University Press called In Spies We Trust. And it's a a history of the relationship between the British and American spy organizations or intelligence organizations mm-hmm. um, from World War One up until the present. And apparently, um, back around the time when Ian Fleming and his James Bond creation were getting incredibly popular, the CIA actually looked into backing an American writer to produce comparably popular American spy fiction as huh. a kind of in a kind of competitive gesture. As, as propaganda almost, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. That's funny. Well, uh, taking a break from the spies and espionage, um, number seven on the fiction hardcover list is an entirely different kind of book, though also another one that got a starred review from PW. Uh, This is Ladies' Night by Mary Kay Andrews, and it's about a woman named Grace Stanton who has an elegant lifestyle blog that she's developed into a lucrative business with popular recipes and decorating and craft ideas. So this is one of those books where it seems like the protagonist has a perfect life, and then it all falls apart. She discovers her husband and her assistant are having an affair. She has to move back in with her mother. Uh, her husband locks her out of their house and tries to seize their bank accounts. Um, and worst of all, he tries to sabotage her online reputation. And as we know, these days, that's a very, very big deal. That is a very big deal. Especially if your business is primarily online. Uh, so we, we say uh, Andrews delivers a smart, funny, perfect for summer read with a hopeful heart. Uh, which does include a romance as Grace meets a special someone in her divorce recovery group of all places. Uh, so if you're looking for, as they say, a beach read, you know, something that's not too challenging and a little fluffy and lighthearted and sweet and maybe a bit of a tearjerker at the end, uh, Ladies' Night is it. And uh, like I said, it's n- number seven. Now, some of these uh, women's fiction books or, or cozies and things will come well, I, if they feature you know, somebody who is a, a craftsperson or, or a cook, they will come with recipes or, or, or craft ideas. Do you know if this book has any of that featured in it? So this book doesn't, but oddly, the thriller I was talking about, Red Sparrow, does, hmm. um, of, of all things. Uh, it's, it's got uh, recipes for the different Russian and other dishes that are made in the book. So uh, this is actually one of the things that Peter cited when he was talking about it. He said, this is not what you expect in a spy thriller. Is it, it You expect it in the women's fiction, but there it is. I guess spies uh, you know, get hungry too. I guess spies do get hungry too. And you, you know, a lot of these conversations are conducted over meals. That's right. That's right. 
So finally, there was one other thing uh, I wanted to mention about this week's bestseller list. This is not the fiction hardcover list, but as I said, number one in fiction hardcover is Inferno with 93,000 sales. Number one on our romance list is Entwined With You by Sylvia Day with 134,000 sales. Wow. So this is one of those places where um, building bestseller lists sometimes depends on how you categorize a book. In this case, it's a paperback that's selling for $15, so they don't feel that that goes quite in the, the same place you know, to be compared with all these hardcovers that are selling for 26 or 28 or $30. But uh, 134,000 people decided to plunk down that $15 or probably heavily discounted on Amazon Mm -hmm. for uh, Sylvia Day's third erotic novel. She um, launched with Bared to You, which was uh, it's now back at number 13 because people buying the third book are picking up the first one. Maybe they originally got it from the library or from a friend uh, and reflected in you. Number uh, the second book in the series is also on the bestseller list. So all all three are. Uh, hitting the charts in romance. And she was sort of the first author to really capitalize on the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon a year ago. And it's kind of hard to believe that it's it's been that long. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey has just been a buzzword for, uh, it seems like, forever. <laughs> it has. It's become part of the, the conversation seemingly every week. But she was uh, fortunate enough to have Bared to You coming out right as the, the Fifty Shades craze was building. So she'd obviously written it sometime before and uh, her publisher immediately capitalized on this i think was very smart uh, put out the books and pushed them very very hard and they've been extremely popular so uh, clearly a lot of people out there wanted to find out what would happen in book three uh, and that one's rocketed to the top of the charts i imagine the the there were a lot of people trying to capitalize um, on the success of Fifty Shades of Grey. Now, the, you mentioned that she has three books. Is is this a trilogy or is this going it to is be a, a trilogy. continued series? Okay. It is a trilogy. It's sort of hard to sustain this kind of series for longer than that. And you, there are a few people who have done it, um, most famously Laura Antonia with the Marketplace books, uh, which was probably the, the original sort of erotic blockbuster series. Uh, but she did it by featuring a different protagonist in each book and having them more sort of loosely connected. This is more of a traditional trilogy. You follow the same people through a series of different escapades as they try and figure their relationship out. So uh, I, I think this is going to be the last book. But Sylvia Day is extremely prolific. She writes all kinds of romances, contemporaries, historicals, erotica. Uh, and so it'll, it'll be very interesting to see where she goes next. We'll probably see her again on the bestseller list. Undoubtedly. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Sam Slayton, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Rod Dreher will tell us about his memoir of family life in a tiny Louisiana town. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Sam Slayton, filling in for Mark Rotella this week. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Rod Dreher on the line. His new book is The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming, A Southern Girl, A Small Town, and The Secret of a Good Life. Thanks for joining us, Rod. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. So tell us a little bit about this book. Uh, it's about your sister's struggle with cancer and your, your family's reaction to that, your own reaction to that. It is, and it's a book about homecoming, too. Uh, my, my sister Ruthie and I were both uh, born and raised in a small town in South Louisiana. We could not have been more different. She was very much the tomboy, the country girl. She loved hunting and fishing and everything that's at the center of life in our little Louisiana town. 
And I couldn't wait to get out. I buried myself in books and uh, longed to travel and go see the world. And after I finished college, I did. And I, I lived over the years and, and worked as a journalist in Washington, D.C., and, and Miami, in New York, Dallas, and uh, ended up in Philadelphia. And all this time, Ruthie stayed home uh, or stayed around here. She taught in the local school. She, uh, uh, she married her high school sweetheart. She raised three girls. And life was good. We both followed two very different paths. And then in early 2010, she was diagnosed with inoperable lung cancer. Mm-hmm. She had never smoked, uh, had always lived a good life and a good, healthy life. And she lived for 19 months. During that period in which she struggled with cancer, I came to understand a lot more about what matters in life and about, and I thought about our place and, and the sense of community that I've always wanted to have but never have had because I moved around so much. After Ruthie died in the fall of 2011, uh, I came down for the funeral to Louisiana, and my wife and I both had epiphanies, and or the same epiphany, and we realized that there was actually a lot of good here in St. Francisville, the little town, and we moved here with our family from Philadelphia, and we now live in my hometown again. So um, tell us a little bit more about your sister and her life. What, what was it like for her while you were gallivanting around being a journalist? <laughs> she uh, had a very ordinary life, you know, by most, by most people's respect. She taught math to middle schoolers, and on the weekends she would go fishing in my dad's pond and go camping with her girls. Her, her husband, Mike, is a firefighter, an Iraq War veteran. They had an ordinary life. And I would go running off to Europe, to Jerusalem. I, I covered the Pope's visit to Jerusalem, and I had exactly the life I'd always dreamed of. And uh, I did not see the value in her life. She didn't see the value in mine either, I should say. And that's one of the tensions in the book that I, I write about, is the fact that we had so much judgment on both sides about the, the path each of us had chosen. But uh, I wrote a book in 2006, uh, sort of a pop politics book, talking about the, the rootlessness in American life and how we, this is a real spiritual and, uh, and political problem for us. What I never stopped to see was my sister had actually chosen to live out the life that I only dreamed about. Mm-hmm. So, so did you and your sister uh, keep in contact while, while, while you were uh, away covering things like the, the Pope and his visit to Jerusalem? I mean, did you talk about these tensions openly? No, we didn't. We, we did keep in contact because our, our family was really close, and there was a lot of tenderness in my family when we were growing up, and we were always taught to, uh, to stay in close touch, and we did, but we never talked about serious things. Ruthie didn't want to. I tell the story in the book about being in college with Ruthie, and she stopped by to have dinner one night in a college cafeteria with my best friend and I, and we were talking about Nietzsche and the death of God and theology and all these heavy topics, and she thought we were full of it. For Ruthie, uh, the, the good life was what you did, not what you sat around and talked about. She was really suspicious of intellectuals and writers, and uh, and I, she just had no no patience and no curiosity about the world I lived in, and I knew that I didn't have any any curiosity about the world she lived in either, and I never doubted that she loved me, or, or I, I hope she didn't doubt that I loved her, but we just you know same planet, different worlds. And had it not been for your your sister's illness, do you think you would have come to? Uh, do you think you would have had this kind of epiphany if? if time had just, you know, gone on, do you think you would have eventually returned home and discovered this again? No, I don't think I would have. And that is, uh, that is the tragedy, but also the beauty. 
in my, the drama of my sister's life and death. Uh, what I saw from afar, and remember I was in Philadelphia for the whole time she was struggling with cancer, I saw this community, this town of 1,700 people surround my family down here and hold them up and carry them. And uh, I, I realized, as uh, standing outside the church at my sister's wake, that the thing that had made me leave this town, uh, one of the things that made me leave the town as a teenager, very bitter and, and angry, which was the conformity and the very tight social bonds that I felt held me down and held me back, these were the only things holding my Louisiana family up during their crisis. And I, the, the town hadn't changed that much. I had changed a lot. And my wife and I, I remember talking after the wake uh, about what would happen to us if one of us were diagnosed with cancer in Philadelphia. It's not that people in Louisiana are better people than Philadelphians. It's that we, my wife and I, had moved around so much we didn't have those deep roots. My sister had cultivated those deep roots by living in the same community all her life and by serving others, teaching the children of the townspeople. And when she needed them, everybody was there for them. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Rod Dreyer about his new book, The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming, which is about his sister's life and death and some epiphanies attached to that. So after you moved back to St. Francisville, you said you and your wife sort of had that same moment of this is what we've been looking for, and we didn't even know it. Um, still, was it was it challenging for you and your wife and your kids to settle into a new place? You know, the yes, it has been challenging, but the challenges haven't come where I expected them to. It's been great to live here in the small town and get you. The weather is really difficult, especially in the <laughs> summer. But, you know, we have chickens in our backyard now, and um, I, I love the whole southern ethos. And the, we're about to start a Walker Percy Literary Festival in town. There are all these marvelous opportunities down here. The difficult thing has been living with my family. I... Um, you know, you can't be gone for so long and then come home and expect to step right back into it. And um, as I say in the book, my, my sister's oldest daughter, Hannah, she's 19, and I, I took her to Paris after her mom died to kind of, because I, I love Paris, and I wanted to show her what I loved about the city. And she told me there that, you know, you're, you're going to have a tough time with my younger sisters because we grew up in a household where our mom talked bad about you. So mm. what do you mean? She said that, you know, Mom really thought that you had been disloyal to the family by leaving. And um, and I know Hannah said, I know that's not true, but my younger sisters don't know that, and so you're going to have a tough time with them. And that really has proven true. I, I, I'm not as close as I wish I were to my, my nieces, but um, I think it's something that can only come through time and presence. Speaking of time and presence, how long have you been back in St. Francisville? And is your wife originally from the South as well? Can you talk a bit about how it's been a, um, a unique struggle for her? Sure. We've been back about a year and a half uh, in St. Francisville. And to be honest, neither one of us are having trouble living in this town. It's been, it's been marvelous. But to be honest, too, I, I think my wife, who is from Dallas, has had an easier time of it than I have because she doesn't have any baggage here. She's very outgoing and friendly and loves gardening. She does organic gardening in the backyard, and uh, that's just not my thing. But uh, we have our kids love being around their grandparents and their cousins and their extended family. I have lots of cousins who live around here, and I, I haven't gotten to know them since I was a kid. I mean, I left here at 16. I'm 46 now. Mm. Uh, and it's been fantastic to get to know them as adults and 
get to learn family stories that I didn't even know existed, and I wouldn't have known if we had stayed away. So your book covers some of these really intimate topics, and you're talking very candidly about the the struggles within your family. It's definitely not all happiness all the time. Um, how did your family, both your wife and your kids and, and your, your birth family, react to your plans to write a memoir about this? Well, they were very nervous. My, my birth family was, my, my Louisiana family, mm-hmm. because everything was still so raw. You know, I, I, I started the book only four months after Ruthie died. In, in fact, I worried about writing this book so close after the, the trauma of her death, because I, I still had a lot of complicated grief to work out, too. But I also knew that it was important to get this story down and talk to all the people who knew Ruthie, who were closest to Ruthie, before the um, what you might call the legend of St. Ruthie settled in, you know, and the right. poetic memory starts to work and people forget the, the rough parts and only remember the best. But um, I, I made sure that as I wrote the book that the people who were closest to the story, uh, my mom and dad, Ruthie's widower, Mike, Ruthie's best friend, Ruthie's doctor, they got to see drafts as I went along. And they never, not one person asked me to remove anything, and we would have had that conversation had that happened. But um, after it was over, my dad, he was the one I was most worried about. He called me and said, well, you know, I've read your book now, I've read the final manuscript, and everything you said was the truth. And uh, he congratulated me for that. To me, that, that was, it couldn't get any better than that, because there are some rough things in the book. It's, this book is not the biography of a saint. Uh, and my dad doesn't always come off the best in the book, but uh, it's clear from the, the narrative that I, I hugely love and respect my family, and, uh, and I think I paid them a compliment by just telling the truth. I have to say, though, that my, my brother-in-law, Ruthie's husband, I'm not sure how he feels about the book, because he doesn't talk about anything. He's a very quiet, stoic man, and uh, he's still, I think, locked up in his grief, even though Ruthie's been gone a year and a half. Well, that's not all that long, necessarily. No, no, it's not. But I wanted so badly to be sensitive to him and to his own pain, because he and Ruthie was the only woman he ever loved. He was the only man Ruthie ever loved. And she died, as I write in the book, she died in his arms at home. And uh, it was an incredibly painful thing. Um, and I, I didn't want to add to his pain by exploiting it for the book. The, the interview I did with him in which he told me what happened the day Ruthie died in his arms, that was the most difficult interview I've ever had to do as a journalist in my entire career. I recorded it, I transcribed it, and then I put that file away. Maybe his children will want to hear it one day, but I hope I never have to hear it again. It was just so raw. I'm Sam Slayton, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Rod Dreyer about his new book, The Little Way of Ruthie Limming. About, it's a memoir about uh, illness and loss and, and homecomings. Rod, in your time away from St. Francisville, you worked as a journalist for several newspapers and, and the magazine. Was there something about your upbringing or, or perhaps St. Francisville itself that helped form you as a writer? You mentioned Walker Percy. I imagine he's, you would count him as one of your influences. Well, sure. I, I think that the most important influence were my two elderly aunts, Lois and Hilda. They were so old when I came along that they, they were both retired and living in a little cabin uh, at the end of a pecan orchard near our house in the country. And they had been nurses, Red Cross nurses in World War I and served near the front. By the time I came along, I would sit with those two old ladies on their red leather sofa under the uh, Audubon prints on the wall and go through their photo albums of the First World War and 
we'd, we had, we'd spread out a Rand McNally atlas on our laps, and they would tell me about all the places they had been all over the world. They opened my mind up to the, to the world of words and the wor- world of travel and imagination, and uh, I can't imagine where my life would be if it hadn't been for those wonderful old ladies. I, I look at pictures now of their little wooden cabin, which is no longer there. It was torn down, and it looks so humble and shabby to me. But back in the day when I was four, five, six years old, it was like C.S. Lewis's enchanted wardrobe. I would just walk through it into another world. So your, your aunts turned you on to the, to the world of words. You said, at, now that you've been out in the world and you've had a, a life of words, what do you feel like you bring to St. Francisville now? Well, I, I, that's a really good question and one that I hesitate to answer only because, you know, I, I'm feel like I'm walking on, on thin ice. You know, I'm, I'm now the, the writer guy who has the funny glasses and the funny haircut and who lived in New York. So I mean, people are really <laughs> nice to me now, but, but they, I, I think people don't quite know how to take me. Um, but I, what I hope to do is bring a sense of appreciation to the town and, and affirmation to the town and let people know that what they have here is so special and it's something that uh, that so many people who don't have a place like this to go to long for. I remember when we returned to Philadelphia for my sister's funeral to tell our friends that uh, we had decided to move to South Louisiana. We thought they would make fun of us for uh, adopting this sort of Green Acres lifestyle, you know, moving out to the country and uh, you'll, you'll miss the Thai food and all that. And I got a little bit of that, but the main thing I got was people envious of us. Some people even were reduced to tears, saying, I wish I had a place like that to go back to, a place where my family had been for five or six generations. You're so lucky. That's what I want people around my town now to know, is how fortunate they are to uh, have the heritage of a place like this. And it took me having to basically go halfway around the world for most of my life to appreciate what I had right here. So you mentioned that you were starting a, a literary festival there, and that sounded like the perfect marriage of you know what what the place is and who you are. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. the The town we live in is uh, famous for the, its old South architecture, the plantation houses, things like that. And there's a town festival that that observes that that part of our history. But Walker Percy uh, is uh, of writer, well-known writer, who mm-hmm. set some of his novels right here in our town. His last novel, in fact, The Thanatos Syndrome, was used our nuclear power plant as one of its uh, in the plot. And we, we were thinking about a way, I, I was some of my friends who like to read and write, we were thinking about ways we could honor Percy, because he doesn't have a festival now. Every little town in Louisiana has a festival, but nobody has honored Percy. He died in the early 1990s. And uh, I, I think in many ways he's, he's been forgotten or is in danger of being forgotten. And uh, we talked to some local people uh, who didn't know who he was, but once they started listening to us talking about Percy and his legacy and what Percy has to teach us today, they became intrigued. And so uh, we're in the early planning stages of it, but there's so much of that history here that even people people who live in the town don't know. The, the Percy's are all over our town, and uh, and even some of them, I talked to one, a friend of mine, a neighbor who's a Percy, and she said, well, none of us Percy's know our cousin Walker. We knew of him, but he was such a strange writer, we never really talked to him. <laughs> I should mention that several of us at, at the PW offices uh, love The Moviegoer. It's one of our, our, our favorite books. Right. Um, 
You know, I'm reading it right now. Uh, I, I'm a, my wife is a big fan of Percy's fiction. I love his nonfiction, and uh, so I have a lot of reading to get caught up on before we uh, we have this thing. I'm Sam Slayton, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Rod Dreyer about his new book, The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming. Now, Rod, you worked briefly for the John Templeton Foundation. What exactly is that foundation, and what did you do there? It's a philanthropy that's in uh, suburban Philadelphia that uh, contributes its its vast fortune to uh, mostly to academic uh, research having to do with science and religion, some free market stuff, the, the things that uh, Sir John Templeton, the late Sir John Templeton, was interested in. I was hired to come start a, an online magazine about science and religion and, and free markets, again, the, the stuff that they, they're interested in, um, for, uh, for the foundation. And that didn't work out in the end for complicated reasons, but that was the occasion for me going to Philadelphia. And so according to the subtitle of your book, The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming, you know the secret of a good life. So can you mm-hmm. share that secret with us? Yeah, the secret of a good life, as I found out from observing my sister's life, is gratitude. Gratitude and service and love. I realized standing in the front of the church at my sister's wake when we had over a thousand people come by that night. That's more than half the town. People mm-hmm. would stop me and say, sir, you don't know me, but your sister was my teacher. And here's what she did for me. I heard from some of the poorest people in this country who came by that night to say what Ruthie had meant to them and how she had reached out to them and loved them at a vulnerable time in their lives. And I began to see that real greatness in life, both goodness and greatness in life, comes from love and community and serving humbly. You don't have to have big events in your life or or live this sort of big life of running off to Jerusalem, Paris, New York. If you have that, there's nothing wrong with that. But everybody can have a good life if they just do what they're given to do with gratitude and simplicity and love. That's what Ruthie did, and she really taught me. And I have to say, she's continuing to teach people through this book. I hear from people all the time on email who've, who say that the book has helped heal their family. It has caused them to pick up the phone and call their dad. They haven't talked to him in 10 years because they had a falling out. When Ruthie was sick, she I, I, she would try to comfort me when I would say, this is so unfair, this is happening to you. She said, we don't know what God's going to do with this. Whenever I hear about somebody having been reconciled to their family or some good thing happening because they've read Ruthie's story, I feel like she was vindicated. We've been talking with Rod Dreher. You can find his new book, The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming, in stores right now. Rod, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure. It's been a real pleasure for us, too. Thanks so much. I'm Sam Slayton. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Reviews Editor Alex Crowley tells us about some unusual new books from independent presses. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Sam Slayton, filling in for Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today Reviews Editor Alex Crawley joins us with his regular feature on Hot Small Press Books. Welcome, Alex. Thank you very much. I always wonder if I'm getting your name right. Crowley? Crowley? Crowley. Crowley. Okay. I, I sort of slurred it to make sure that it, it wasn't too far off get, one way or another. Get all the pronunciations. Um, and we have some other names here that this is totally embarrassing for me that I don't know how to pronounce, but I'm 
think it's really cool that you've this brought us our theme of the week. It'll be our theme of the week. Yeah. Um, you've brought us all authors. these books in translation, which is fantastic. So tell us a little bit about these small press titles. All right. Three small press titles. We have two from New Directions and one from Open Letter, which is out of the University of Rochester. I'll start with that one because it's uh, Marguerite Dura, who I think most people would know maybe from her film work. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote uh, The Ravishing of Lowell Stein and turned that into a film. This is a first English translation of her 1971 work, L'Amour. I was going to say, she's been around for a she's while. She's been around for a, a long time. I started reading it. It's quite good. It's very cinematic in its form. We have three protagonists, each of whom is unnamed. Uh, one woman who's found on a beach a man, by a man who's walking and then another man who's also walking along the beach. And it's, it's part of what is called her India period or India trilogy. Uh, so presumably it's just a fictionalized and symbolic representation of a seaside Indian town or village. My reviewer who sent me uh, his notes said it reminded him very much of Virginia Woolf's The Waves. He also listed Vladimir Sorokin's The Q, uh, which I've never read, so mm-hmm. I'm assuming it's a good comparison, and Sartre's No Exit. The, there's, a, there's quite a bit of repetition here, uh, given uh, the setting and also the way that the, the three interact. The woman is pregnant. They're wondering sort of how that came about. There's a lot of mystery involved. So when these two men find the, the woman on the beach, is she just sort of they, washed up on the shore unconscious? She, they find her, she's sleeping, hmm. and they hear a cry on the beach, and it's just, you know, one man goes in to, to investigate, and the other man comes up. They seem to, all, all three of them seem to circle around one an, another in a, a sort of constant riddle, and eventually, you never quite figure out what's going on. There's just a lot of emotion at a distance, mm-hmm. say. So, in the way that her prose is very sparse, we also s- find that the, the interactions are equally as sparse. And there's very little dialogue. And what dialogue there is comes in between bits of uh, expository you know, digression. You mentioned that she's, that she's primarily known for being a filmmaker. And you said that this book is, is pretty cinematic, not very narrative. Do you find that, that small presses or, or independent presses um, seem to be kind of a, a safe haven for more experimental or, or difficult works? And, and if so, why do you think that is? I think that's definitely on point because they're not, not to say that they don't want to make money, but they're not as commercially bound. And whatever it is, and maybe it's a cultural thing, we privilege a narrative over uh, a more... I guess I'll use the word experiential means of art, whether it's uh, in film, like a, ex- an experimental, experiential film, <laughs> which is a bit of a mouthful, where the plot is less important than setting up a series of situations in which you come to some sort of sensation or feeling that you have a, a relationship with a character or a setup of characters. Uh, small presses are are definitely big on that, and a lot of it is also you know the way the differences between most uh, poetry and a lot of more uh, commercial fiction. A lot of poetry is somewhat narrative, 
there's something happening that gives like a, you have an arc, but also it's really about a specific situation or series of situations and they tie themselves together, but in the way that someone's actual life is a series of situations and there's no necessary narrative arc mm-hmm. or plot to it. There's no rising action in, in exactly. denouement and things like that. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with Reviews Editor Alex Crowley about some interesting new books coming out from small presses. You said you had a couple of other books in translation to tell us about. What else have you got? Yeah, two others from New Directions. These two are much more uh, narrative-based. The first one is from, and here we get into the mispronunciation fest, Rabej Jabir, a Lebanese novelist. This is his first English translation. Hopefully, we see a lot more of it. He has uh, 15 novels to his name, and this Mm -hmm. is a brief one. It's only about 200 pages. The premise is in 2005, after Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri was assassinated, the city of Beirut is just in the doldrums. People, It's very tense, but people are subdued and... We have this man, Saman Yarid, who is a an architect at a sort of defunct firm that his family runs. He doesn't really do anything during the day. He just has a company, <laughs> and he mostly walks around the city, you know, going on dates with this woman, visit, you know, visiting restaurants, and most of the time staying at home. But as our reviewer pointed out, it reminded him of Ulysses in a way in that we get a tour of Beirut. We get a tour of the architecture, the city layout, just becoming familiarized with this city, the food there, the lush descriptions of everything. But as the book goes on, suddenly the tone shifts and the narration is from the voice of uh, Saman's sister, Josephine, who had been assassinated in the sectarian violence of the 80s. So she's actually in some sort of afterlife narrating, I believe, her memoir or some sort of thing. And But uh, her brother is able to interact with her somehow. So there are voices from beyond the grave suddenly talking to people who are still in the midst of this very tense atmosphere in Beirut. And it's quite affecting. So it's kind of a translation within a translation in a way. In some ways, it's a translation of what he sees as the afterlife Hmm. and the interactions of someone in that world. So speaking of translations, you have another one here. But a lot of these small presses and independent presses or academic presses, ones that are tied in with, with universities, they seem to put out a lot of titles in translation. Do you know anything about the links that, that these presses have with international authors or, or how they come into contact with these authors or these, these manuscripts after the fact? That I don't know directly. I know Open Letter Press that put out the Dura, they only do works in translation. Uh, so they're constantly searching for people that either have probably have never been translated into English or works that are important by important authors like Marguerite Dura, who... You know, these works haven't been translated. Someone's presumably working on something. Maybe it's for an academic purpose or not, but they, they're pretty dedicated. Uh, Dalkey Archive Press also does a lot of works in translation. Uh, 
New Directions does a lot of in English, but they started out as an experimental, not quite avant-garde, uh, but James Laughlin that started was a big proponent of up-and-coming new, new authors, and it's continued in that direction. So in the Melis Report, the book you were just telling us about, uh, there's definitely this, this supernatural, the spiritual element. And I found that in um, international books, books from outside the U.S. and, um, and England and Australia and sort of the, the, the colonies, the Commonwealth, it's definitely easier to find books with, where that element is just woven in. It's part of life. You know, the afterlife is right there. Of course it is. You know, you talk to ghosts. Of course you do. Um, if, have, you, have you also seen that in you know, these, these books from international authors, translated books? I can't say I've noticed a specific pattern, but that's not to say it's not more prevalent given how we, we sort of balkanized in the U.S. maybe, uh, spiritual novels and people only maybe buy spiritual novels or have that element or or fantasy or novels, fantasy novels mm-hmm. or any number of things like that I, I think we have a tendency to break these things into categories more readily than maybe they do elsewhere or maybe they do and it being a different culture we're not as privy to it and so we just see the individual works mm-hmm. but I'm not sure that in the Mellis report it's necessarily a spiritual element uh, so much as just sort of a, a narrative device. Right. I mean, I didn't, um, I didn't necessarily mean that. I, I meant it yeah. sort of literally as in there are spirits here. There are here. spirits. Yeah, um, there are spirits uh, less, less inhabiting, in inhabiting the story. That, right. That you yeah. can, that the protagonist is communicating with directly. You're, you do bring up a good point because I can't think of something else immediately offhand where... Yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily more prevalent uh, in in works from outside the U.S., but definitely, I feel like it's just less compartmentalized. It's more a part of everyday life, and yeah. I, I find that I find that very interesting. It's just a completely different narrative technique, and for American readers, it's really refreshing to encounter something like that. So you have a you have another book here from New Directions by Cesar Aria Ira 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 We're... Cesar Ira. Tell yeah, us a little bit about that one. He is a quite notable Argentine author, less well-known here, I think, but he's also written, besides besides fiction, a uh, number of essays and you know other criticism works. This book's quite fascinating. I, I started it this weekend. My reviewer wrote to me and said, you know, for PW, this, this book should get as many stars as is humanly possible. Uh, so, Well, this isn't Amazon. We only give one we'll, or not. Unfortunately, you can only give one star. Uh, however, I will say what I've read so far of it is is definitely deserving. It takes place in 19th century Argentina, and English naturalist arrives and goes out to find, quote-unquote, a hare, uh, supposedly. Um, but it's difficult to tell as you're going through what is really what he's really looking for and he's not quite sure what he's looking for because he's encountering um some of the indigenous population and they're speaking uh mapuche and huiliche uh, which he is able to understand some of he has a guide and translator who's a gaucho and you know there's suspicions on both sides a lot of the fun of the book is that mapuche 
every word means at least two things. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of uh, deception on the part of the the one culture dealing with this new culture, and they don't understand each other. There's political intrigue within the the, the Mapuche uh, group in their chief, um, so, and there's constant misunderstandings. So there's a lot of I don't know if it's necessarily because the protagonist is an, an English naturalist, but there is quite a bit of the dry uh, English wit mm-hmm. in mixing with the, I'd say the the deception, the and what's the other? What else am I thinking of? I don't know. Just just the way that things are, just, everything slips away from where it's supposed to be headed. Um, and that's something that's mirrored in the language. It's t- totally mirrored in the language. And, you know, it'd be interesting to see this in the original Spanish, but... I was going to say, that must have been a fun book to translate. I can't imagine what, <laughs> what it was like to translate. Um, but reading it in English is really, really enjoyable. Um, just getting on the subway and first thing in the morning, you open it up and, you know, you're trying to wake yourself up to come in and you're reading this thing where people are slipping past one another and there's a hair flying and they're like, oh, yes, it's a flying hair and but nobody knows what's actually happening there's nothing there it's just people riding horses in a circle and out in the middle of the argentine pampas so it's 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 quite a fun book um and i think another element of it is just the the western or european uh logic and rational systems uh especially of the you know victor late victorian era coming up directly against a completely different worldview in which there's a, a continuum. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a part of this worldview is everything's connected, everything's a continuum, and so they don't have to differentiate between one thing or another, which kind of brings us back to the having interacting with spirit world or um, there's just, it's there. It's a part of, exactly. of everyday life and you don't have to think about it. And encountering that is a, you know, totally destroys your your whole foundation that you that you came in with mm-hmm. i'm sam slayton and you're listening to publishers weekly radio we're talking with reviews editor alex crowley about small and, ind- and independent presses specifically a couple titles in translation um the publicists for these books must have a pretty tough job i mean you know we we talk about certain books in the industry as being re- review proof um you know case in point recently dan brown's inferno sure people are going to buy that book no matter what a review says of it reviews um for for books like this for for uh, for books by authors that a lot of people um in america probably aren't familiar with a review can really make a difference so when 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 your reviewer says you know i want to give it all the stars that we can give it that really means something it has the the chance to change things um who do you think is the the audience um for books like like this is it a rarefied audience or is it is it only rarefied because we aren't familiar with them yet uh i would say in the case of marguerite dura i would say i would say it would be a more rarefied audience just because the form is so radically different than what we're accustomed to Jabir and the era are fairly straightforward that they have narrative that they're, you know, in weird engaging stories um, instead of just being a 
modified uh, screenplay of sorts mm-hmm. um, as beautiful as and spare as the language is um, but that would they, there's definitely people that lean towards that there's definitely a, a, a good place to look small and independent presses if you want some sort of really interesting rich thing that you've never tried before all right well alex thank you so much for that roundup much appreciated oh thank you it's always good to have you on and that's it for today's show i'm rose fox and i'm sam slayton and you've been listening to publishers weekly radio tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on sirius xm book radio channel 80 thanks for listening you've been listening to publishers weekly radio show